Today we're going to be studying Mark 11, but I actually want you to open up to Daniel chapter 9 first. So if you have a Bible, let's go to Daniel chapter 9. And let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, Lord, the authority it has in our life. Father, I pray that your people would be interested, would love to study the Bible, would love to hear it taught. Lord, I pray that you would give us a hunger and a thirst uh, for truth. And as we study today, Lord, I pray that you would be our teacher, Lord, you would anoint uh, the teaching and you would anoint the ears that are listening, Lord. Uh, keep us, Father, attentive to your voice, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So in today's study, we're going to contemplate a couple of questions. Uh, if you're taking notes, and I do encourage you to take notes if possible. Who is he? Who is he? Number one, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? We're going to see without a shadow of a doubt, this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He's the Christ. But then there's a second question, who am I? Who am I? I mean, who is this, not just Jesus of Nazareth, but Manny of Almani? Who is this guy? You know, We're going to see today that I'm just a man, but by the grace of God, I'm a Christian man. Very important questions to answer. You know, there's no question who he is. We'll see today without a doubt. And three words are going to help us in that. If you're taking notes, here's three things to write down. Number one, Daniel. Uh, number two, the day. And then number three, the donkey. We'll elaborate on that as we go through, because those are three things that prove who he is. Daniel, the day, and the donkey. But there's no question who he is. The question really today is who we are. And in today's text, in Mark chapter 11, we'll consider three things. Again, if you're taking notes. Number one, are we words with no heart? I think many times we can say the word hallelujah and not mean it. Be careful. Are we words with no heart? Number two, are we leaves with no fruit? You know, you got the tree, they got the religion, but they don't got the relationship. Are we words with no heart? Are we leaves with no fruit? And are we a temple with no God? We're going to see that as we go through our study today. And we begin in our study as we go in Mark 11. We're going to study what's known as Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry where Jesus Christ enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. You know, most of us here have probably seen the images, uh, the visuals of this. Jesus uh, on that donkey, the palm branches, the people laying down their clothing before him as if they're rolling out the red carpet it's such a rich section of scripture that's deeply rooted in the Old Testament. And it's for that reason, I hope it's okay, but I thought I would start out today different by pointing to a few of those passages that are fulfilled in the Old Testament. And we begin here in Daniel 9. Really, verses 24 through 27 are known as the 70 weeks of Daniel. You know, the book of Daniel was written at least 539 years before Christ. And Daniel 9, this particular chapter, is a prophecy given to Daniel through the angel Gabriel. 
Again, this is known to Bible teachers as the 70 weeks of Daniel. And what we find, according to verse 24, is that uh, there's going to be 70 weeks, or literally in the Hebrew language, 77s that are determined for Daniel's people, the Jews, wherein God deals with them and does significant things through them. And so, 70 weeks. And when those 77-year periods are completed, then the world as we now know it will end. That leads to the millennial kingdom, which eventually gives way to the heavenly kingdom, which is forever and ever. Notice again in verse 24, Daniel 9, 70 weeks are determined for your people, speaking to the Jews, and for your holy city, Jerusalem. And this sounds like everything, man, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. That most holy is none other than the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And so he says in verse 25, Know therefore and understand, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. You know, something so fascinating about the presentation of the Messiah, the triumphal entry, this Palm Sunday that we're about to study, is that it could have actually been calculated by very simple math. If you do the math, you can count the days. Uh, he mentions the seven weeks and the 62 weeks. Combined, it means 69 weeks. So 69 seven-year periods would be 483 years. That is 173,880 days using the Jewish calendar. And so it's very simple. You start counting from March 14th, 445 B.C., which is the day Artaxerxes issued the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Not the temple. The Jerusalem would be rebuilt by rebuilding the walls. And so when that day started, then you can count the days, 173,880 days, and it brings you to April 6, 32 A.D., which is the very day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. You see, that day, this day, is the day that in one sense you can visualize it, God circled on his calendar when he would present the Messiah, when he would offer his son as the savior for the people. And so with that, we go to Psalm 118, and we just read this psalm, but I want to draw your attention to verse 22 through 26. Notice what it says in verse 22, Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then notice verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, Psalm 118 is known amongst the Jews as the Messianic Psalm. 
And the stone we read about in verse 22, which the builders rejected, becoming the chief cornerstone, is in reference to Jesus. They rejected him, and yet he's the chief cornerstone. That passage is quoted five times in the New Testament. You know, that right there is another study altogether, but at this point, I want to hone in on verse 24, where we know this passage. How many of you guys know that song? This is the day. We know the song, right? I won't sing it because I want you guys to continue to like me, but here's the thing. Uh, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice. Frequently, Christians and Jews quote this verse in reference to every day and any day that God has made, and that's okay to do. But here's the thing. The true meaning of this verse is the day. It's the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. You know, the, the context here is, is overwhelming, and we're going to see as we go through this passage that it all adds up. It's so amazing when you read the Bible. You know, as a matter of fact, Jesus even calls this day your day when he speaks to the Jews in Luke 19, 41 and 42. The Bible says, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known even you, especially in this, your day the things that make for your peace. And you read the account and you wept over Jerusalem because they had missed this day, which was their day to accept Christ, their king. You know, because even though we're going to see it, the crowd, you know, they shouted and it seemed like they were receptive. You know, the religious leaders weren't on board. And in just five days, the people would be swayed by them to say, crucify him. You see, Psalm 118 is connected to the triumphal entry, and we're going to see it later, as even they will quote verse 26 of Psalm 118, or verse 25, save now, or Hosanna, you know, and verse 26 as well. There's a lot here. One last thing I want you guys to turn to Zechariah chapter 9, in verse 9, it's page 1,288, just in case you didn't know where it was. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, a minor prophet. Notice what it says. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so, you know, most kings would probably enter in on a white stallion or a mighty horse. Uh, most would charge in on some type of chariot, but not the Messiah. The Messiah wouldn't. It was predicted, it was prophesied that he would ride in on a donkey. In the book of Zechariah, written at least 470 years before Jesus was even born, and as he rides in on a donkey, what that tells us is that the first time Jesus came, he came in peace. He came in humility. And so, you know, you put those three things together, Daniel, the day, and the donkey, and you get a little bit of background to Mark 11. So let's go there now, if you would, to Mark 11. As we read in verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, 
And as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. And so they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street. And they loosed it. They just started taking it. (laughs) But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, this is what we just read in Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We read in verse 1 that they drew near to Jerusalem. Uh, Mark mentions Bethphage. He also mentions Bethany. uh, And they finally arrive now at the Mount of Olives. Uh, The Mount of Olives, also known as Mount Olivet, is obviously named because it has many olive trees It's part of a a range that extends over two miles on the eastern side of the old city of Jerusalem, and it actually separates it from the Judean desert. You know, if you were to look, you would see three peaks in this range, and the Mount of Olives is at the center of those peaks at 2,600 feet in elevation. Uh, I think we have an aerial view uh, of the map where you guys can kind of see uh, where the Mount of Olives is in relationship to Jerusalem. They're on the east and uh, Jerusalem on the west. And in between the two, you have what's known as the Kidron Valley. Um, we might also have a modern view of Jerusalem. Let me see if we have the next slide. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, this is a, a modern view. Um, just to kind of give you some perspective uh, in relationship to the distance involved where Jesus would be on the Mount of Olives. Uh, there you see the, the Dome of the Rock. Obviously, that wasn't there that at then, but it, that was the Temple Mount. And uh, that's where Jesus would be looking at Jerusalem. And he would travel from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. Um, but as we look at this, we're going to see it's different than all the other times, because he intentionally fulfilled prophecy, as we saw in our text, by sending uh, two of his disciples to get uh, the donkey. Hopefully, uh, you guys uh, can go with us to Israel. We're going to go next year, Lord willing. Any of you guys want to go? Wouldn't that be cool? And we'll be able to go through this whole uh, uh, journey ourselves. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, Joey, one of the guys that went with us last time, he had a GoPro. And, uh, and so he had video footage of all these things. And yesterday I was searching valiantly to try to find that video. And I got to tell Joey that it's not as organized as he thought it was. <laughs> but man, you know, we can actually go and we can walk those same footsteps. But you know, um, this whole thing of Jesus getting the donkey and arranging it and setting it up it was totally different than what he would normally do. You know, Jesus never made a fuss about himself. He was very low-key in his ministry. If others were tempted to give him any publicity, he would actually forbid them to do so. He would say, don't say anything. 
You read that in Mark 8, verse 30, Mark chapter 9, verse 9, and other places. But this time, as we read it, it's radically different. He says, go into the village. Uh, you'll find a colt, which is a young donkey. And, and think about this. It's never been ridden before. That would make it supernatural, right? And, and so he says, if anyone asks, just tell them the master needs it. And believe me, they won't have a problem with it. It went down. Everything went down just as Jesus had said. And uh, as you go through this whole story, they eventually, you know, you can see. Now, in that time in Jerusalem, uh, Josephus tells us that there were approximately 3 million people there. And in that Kidron Valley, it's not the Hinnom Valley, that's where the dump was. The Kidron Valley, you would have just thousands and thousands of people setting up their tents, camping there. And so as Jesus is going down this procession, he is openly, publicly, intentionally presenting himself as the Messiah on that day to the people. And it was just an amazing thing when you look at that. And when they, when they saw him, they, they did cry out, Hosanna. And like I said earlier, it literally means save now, save now. Eventually the word evolved to become synonymous with a praise, just like hallelujah, Hosanna. I think we even sing it that way today. And that's what the people were doing. They were crying out those words we read in Psalm 118. And so, you know, you look at this whole thing, he presents himself, they're praising, and it kind of looks like they accept him, right? But in all reality, they didn't. You know, in just five days, they would be swayed to say those words, crucify him, crucify him. And you wonder why. Well, how could this happen? It's very simple. You see, the people wanted salvation from Romans not salvation from sins. They wanted a political king. They were not interested in a spiritual king. Jesus knew that. He had to go through this prophecy in order to fulfill God's word, but he knew, even going into it, because Luke tells us that before he went down, he wept over the city because they had missed this their day. And so, you know, and you guys, looking at this section is just fascinating. When I read it, and I hope you feel the same way, it proves who he is, right? And, uh, you know, it also shows how we are, who they are. People singing, people singing songs, people quoting scriptures, saying words, but not from the heart. And we have to examine our lives. Lord, is that me? Lord, is that me? Like, for example, let me just kind of walk with you a few, a few uh, phrases. Uh, um, how about if you guys say this, I love you, Lord. Can you say it? I love you, Lord. Lord. Okay, and then this time, though, I want you to look up and just say, I, I love you, Lord. Can you guys do that? Okay, did you mean it? Okay, now look at each other. Look at someone next to you and say, I love you. Okay. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Did you mean it? Did you mean it? Let's do another one. Let's do another one. Jesus, you are Lord. Do you mean it? Do you live it? You know, I mean, for us, we could say words and we can sing songs and 
I don't know if you guys ever do it. You know, sometimes we sing those songs during worship and your mind is thinking about the, you know, the burritos afterwards. And, you know, um, I, I want to encourage you guys. And it, 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 it takes um, spiritual discipline and maturity. But as we're singing these songs, focus on the words. Focus on the Lord. And as you're living that life, if Jesus is Lord, do you know what that means? I mean, that's amazing. We have to make sure we don't just say it, right? I mean, you know, why do you love the Lord? Why are you praising him? The blessings that he gives to you. Oh, yeah. But a lot of times, like these guys, we're just thinking along the physical or material or temporal or political. Praise God for those things where you got to search your heart and go deeper. What about the spiritual? What about the eternal? Let's do our best, you guys. And here's a scary passage in Matthew 15, 8. It says, These people, they draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Be careful. And I heard a story about a father who complained about the amount of time his family spent in front of the television. And his children watched cartoons and neglected their schoolwork, and his wife preferred reality shows to housework. And so his solution? He broke the news to his family, and he said, as soon as basketball season is over, I'm, plug I'm plugging that television. You know, you know and, and just all I'm saying is this, you guys. Beware of hypocrisy. Are we words with no heart? How about this one? Are we leaves with no fruit? Look at verse 11. It says, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And so when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but Leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. In, in verse 11 there, we see Jesus inspecting the temple. He kind of went in, he looked around, but since it was getting late, the Bible says he went back to Bethany, where he probably stayed with his friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Um, but one commentator said he carefully surveyed the premises to see if they were being used as God intended. This led to his action the next day. And so the next day, which is Monday, he leaves Bethany. And as he heads toward Jerusalem, the Bible says he was hungry. But when he came to the fig tree, there was no fruit on it. Verse 13 tells us that it wasn't necessarily the season for figs. And so you kind of wonder, then, why did Jesus judge it? We're going to see next week, Lord willing, that the tree dried up from the roots. Well, here's the thing that we understand. According to that time, it was Passover. And so it was the middle of the month of Nisan, our April. And in Israel at this time, fig trees, they produced small edible buds. They produced those in March, followed by the appearance of large green leaves in early April, which is what Jesus saw. And here's the thing. The early green fruit was common food for the locals to eat. An absence of this green fruit that Jesus was looking for, in spite of the large leaves, what we find an absence of that green fruit 
meant that it would not bear fruit that year. Because see, eventually these buds, these green buds would drop off and then the normal crop of figs would form later in May and June. That was the actual fig season. And so Jesus was looking for signs of fruit. Jesus was looking for those green buds. Thus, it was reasonable for him shortly before Passover to expect to find something on that fig tree, even though it wasn't the actual season for figs. As a matter of fact, it's kind of interesting, the word Bethphage there, that, that town Bethphage in Mark 11.1, 1, it literally means a house of unripe figs. And so, you know, what we find later in verse 20, Jesus judges this fig a tree, he does it beginning now. Looking at that story right here, and you guys, this is the only time Jesus does a miracle that's destructive as far as in his first ministry. Why? Is it because he was hungry and, you know, hey, there's no fig trees? Is it a lesson for fig trees? Of course not. He's trying to warn Israel and even us. You know, the fig tree is a picture of Israel. We read that in Hosea 9, verse 10, Micah 7, Nahum 3. You know, one commentator said, like the fig tree, Israel flourished with the leaves of religion but lack the fruit of righteousness. Both episodes signify God's impending judgment on Israel for religious hypocrisy. You know, you read the ministry of John the Baptist, and when all the, the Jews were going to John, he said, you know, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. I'm ready to cut this tree down unless it starts bearing fruit worthy of repentance. You see, that's what we see that happened in Israel. And there's a parable in Luke chapter 13 where it says a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said, sir, let it alone this year alone. I will dig around it, fertilize it, and if it bears fruit, well, but if not, then you can cut it down. You know, and, and what do we learn from that? Well, if there's no fruit, there's no root. If there's no fruit, there's no, there's no faith. It doesn't matter if you have religion. What matters is if you have relationship. And it doesn't matter if you have leaves. What matters is if you have love. And if you don't have love, you don't know Jesus. Because that's the fruit of the Spirit. And so we, we read this, and Israel had the leaves of religion, but not the love relationship. They refused to, to humble themselves and repent. They refused to make it real. And so what we see is they were about to suffer the consequences. You see, and then you're like, Manny, why do you say that? It sounds so judgmental. Don't you love me? Yes, I love you. That's the whole point, man. We don't want people to go to hell, and we don't want people to live a life, you know, that, 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 that's not the blessed life that God calls you to live. The petty life that lacks love. Well, they don't like me. Who cares? I mean, if you only love those who like you, then your love is like the pagans. 
love those that God puts into your life. I heard a really cool quote by, by Shakespeare the other day. It said, uh, love all, trust some, and do wrong to no one. Love that. You're supposed to love all, and if you don't, maybe you don't know the Lord. And I gotta tell you that, because one day you'll stand before God, and you can't say, well, I went to church. You can't say, well, I read my Bible, I prayed, and I was involved in ministry. That doesn't save you. Sometimes those things prove you're saved, but one day you're going to stand before God and give an account. Is, is it a matter of words with no heart? Is it a matter of leaves with no love? Now, when we look at this whole thing right here, this last section, is how about a temple without God? Look at verse 15. And so they came to Jerusalem, and then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. Remember we read earlier that Jesus had inspected the temple the day before. And so that night he went back to Bethany. He maybe checked in with his father, who gave his son the green light to return to the temple the next day and clean house. And he drove out those who sold uh, the kosher sacrifices and other things for two reasons. Number one, the amount. The amount. They were gouging the people, ripping them off, charging them way too much. That's why Jesus calls it a den of thieves. That's a reference to Jeremiah 7, verse 11. You know, history tells us that the high priests were making big money off the people. And so the first reason he drove them out is the amount. The second reason is the location. They were selling right there in the court of the Gentiles. It was like a swap meet where the Gentiles were supposed to meet with God. You know, I think we have a visual here of the temple uh, of Herod. And what you'll find is that that temple of the, the court of the, the Gentiles it's a, it's, a, it's a huge area. They weren't allowed to go beyond those walls, but um, that was where they were called to worship God, right? And imagine going to church service, man, to worship in your sanctuary, and it's filled. Imagine if you guys came in here and it was filled with vendors, right? Selling their merchandise. And, you know, and in one sense, I knew they had to sell their merchandise. It was understandable. They needed the sacrifices, the oil, the salt, the wine. Um, it was understandable. They needed to pay temple tax with the proper currency. So there were money changers here, but not for that amount and not in the sanctuary, right? And so, you know, I don't know. When I think of this, um, I think, sometimes of our churches today, how some ministers are getting rich with mansions and some with Maseratis, believe it or not, millions of dollars for themselves. You know, one day, 
their season will end and the sentence will begin. And you guys know that. You guys know about that stuff huh? going on on television and radio. They're not really ministers of God. These things still take place. But, but how about in our own lives? How about just us as individuals? Did you know that your life, your body is a temple? Did you guys know that? According to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. And so let me just ask you this. What's going on in your temple? Like if Jesus were to come in and check it out like he did here, what would he see? Am I praying or am I playing? Am I, am I caught up? And some people, they are caught up with making money. When Christians are supposed to be caught up with making disciples. Isn't that what Jesus said? You know, I'm going and I'm leaving you behind and I want you to make disciples. Wherever your part is in the body of Christ, find your place and fulfill it faithfully. What would Jesus say if he could see your temple and scrutinize you with his eyes of omniscience Is there anything in your life that he would have to drive out? I encourage you today, yield to him, let him in, and let him clean it up. You know, these are things to think about. As we close today, here's the the way we'll kind of round it all up. There's no question about it who Jesus is. There's no question. He's the Messiah, We know that because of Daniel and the day and and the donkey, right? He's the judge. We saw that with the fig tree. And, And he's the high priest. You know, in driving out the people, he manifested his authority over the human high priest of the day, and everyone knew he was right. See, there's no question who he is. The question today is who I am. Well, I am. Am I a Christian? Number one, are you a Christian? Or are you just plain church? Do you have leaves without love? Do you have words without heart? Do you have a temple without God? Are you a Christian? And then secondly, what kind of Christian am I? I pray wherever you are that you would know that the Lord is here um, to meet us wherever we are. You know, if you've been struggling and drifting away from God as a Christian, then, you know, you got to yield to him today. I pray that you would fear him in a loving way because, man, he's such an awesome God and he wants to bless your life. But if you're not a Christian here today, our hearts are especially heavy for you because you have a choice, heaven or hell. I pray that you would choose life. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, well, I don't know, Manny, because I've done a lot of sins. Well, that's why Jesus died. He died for your sins and he shed his blood. And let me tell you something. There is no sin that the blood of Jesus can't wash away. Now, I don't know if any of you had the chance to see the memorial service for the fallen officer uh, the other day. It was on ABC News. It was a funeral that... That, that took place at Calvary Chapel Downey. It was absolutely amazing. And let me say this to you guys. We are blessed with our police officers. 
We are blessed with them. You go to Cambodia, you call the police, you'll be lucky if they show up in an hour. You know, yeah, there are a few bad officers, just like there are a few bad pastors, but it doesn't mean we teach our kids to disrespect pastors. We should teach our children to respect officers. That was a great funeral service, and not only for that reason, but one of the things that was such a blessing for me is what the children said. He had three children, they were all young adults, and every single one of them went up there and they forgave the man who killed their father. You want to know why? Because they were Christians. Their dad had been such an awesome example of Jesus to them. He was a man of integrity and he laid down his life for his friends. And every single child one by one, they went up there and they said, this guy, you know, who, uh, who was only 26 years old, and my heart goes out to this guy, you know, in one sense, because, um, you know, a lot of times we can hate people or we can, you know, say, throw the book, send them to hell, but it's kind of funny because that's not how God is. God wants you to be saved. He wants you to know that his heart is to forgive you. But in order to be forgiven, you have to repent of your sins and you have to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you do, the cool thing is, man, he'll wash away all your sins. The other day, my wife and I, we were trying to scrub off a spot and it wasn't working. And so we got these Sam's Club wipes and let me just tell you something, they're not very good. <laughs> and so she, you know what she did? She broke out the Clorox wipes and man, it wiped it right off. And I'm like, hey, Clorox wipes, man, they're the bomb, you know. <laughs> and you can try, you know, washing away your sins with good works or whatever it is, all that kind of stuff. It won't work. The only thing that will wash away your sins is the blood of Jesus. Do you believe in him? Do you believe from the heart? If you haven't really come to that place, I pray that today you